right, y'all, 1 Peter chapter 1, I've got to say, uh, Amy and the kids are here this week. I know I did a lot of illustrations with them last week, and I lived to tell those stories. So if you happen to see Amy, thank her for uh, letting us kind of live our lives as an example and all the fun things, including her not guarding her heart in Walmart last, well, I guess that was like four years ago, but... Thank her for, for not destroying my life and, and taking me out so that I could be here and dive into First Peter chapter 1 with you guys. So uh, last week, we talked about holiness and, and what it meant to live lives of, of holiness, that we're to be separated from sin and devoted to God. And we talked about positional holiness, that when we are saved and, and have life with him— we are now declared holy, and then our lives after that, our lives after salvation is behavioral holiness, that our, the way that we live our lives is to align with who we are in Christ. And so our conduct kind of has to catch up to who we are in Christ, our positional holiness and breaking down that sanctification. And so really what Peter has done throughout this this letter to, uh, to all these people throughout Asia is explained to them that uh, their salvation is not something that they could earn. It was a gift of God that, that came through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but it was also something that they could not lose, that they were born again to a future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. And he's been spelling out all of these amazing things, and then last week we got into the application of it that it's time to get ready. It's time to gird up your loins. You remember that? We, gir we girded up our loins. We said, let's, let's put our, our Crocs in sport mode, Gen Z Bible, because it's time to live life for God, to live a life of holiness for him. And so we, we unpacked a lot of that there. And, and one of the things I think Peter is doing and what we're going to talk about tonight is anticipating some of the things that people might think as you explain what salvation is and what application looks like for the Christian life. And I'll frame it this way. If I cannot earn my salvation by my church attendance, by my good works, by not doing really bad things, if I can't earn my salvation, but it's, it's a, a, an all-sufficient merit, not my own, but now my own because of what Christ has done, but I also can't lose it because I have a future inheritance reserved for me, if I can't earn it and I can't lose it, then why should I be holy? Like, why should I obey God? Why should I live this life? Why should I try really hard to obey God? Because if his grace is sufficient, then shouldn't I just go and do whatever I want with my life? Like, did he just kind of give me a, a little get out of hell free card and say, go do whatever you want. I'll see you in heaven. You can just live your life being crazy. Why should I be holy? Why should I obey if God has already secured, covered my past and secured my future? And so Peter anticipates that, and he's going to give the motivations of holiness. We kind of saw what holiness was last week, but now he wants to talk about what should motivate the believer to live a life that is pleasing to God. And it's probably a pretty fitting thing, fitting thing for you, because there might be times in your life where you're not very motivated, where you're just stuck in neutral, kind of coasting through this thing. Or maybe you're like, ah, I kind of have a license to sin because grace, grace abounds. Or maybe you're just anxiety-ridden and worried about everything that's going on in your life. And am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? And you have this fear that's, that's just consumed your life. And maybe it's not a healthy fear. And so I think Peter has some great things 
for us. I'm going to read our text and then we'll break it down. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 1, Peter says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter gives two main motivations. He's going to say God is our judge, number one. God is our judge. And number two, God is our redeemer. God is our judge, and God is our Redeemer. And I know initially you think, that's kind of a weird motivation. How does that motivate me? Well, what we have to do is understand the character of God. And as we, the more that we understand God, the more that we understand how we should live in light of who he is. And so he's going to unpack these things in some pretty amazing ways. He starts with saying that God is our judge. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, so in light of God being the judge of our life, here's what we should do. Conduct ourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Well, why would I fear God? It's because he's not just our father, he is also our judge. But here's a really important question. What is God judging what is God judging now I know as you think about it in your head it's almost copy and paste for us we say well when God is judging something he's judging sin God judges sin and that's that's true but that's not true for this passage God is not judging sin in this passage because our sin was judged at the cross and remember Peter's talking to believers here He's talking to people who are already saved. The point here is not judgment as to salvation. And so therefore, the fear that Peter is addressing here is not a fear of hell. It's not a fear of final condemnation and judgment at the end of your life. No, that's not what he's talking about. It's not a fear of judgment and not a fear of, of sin. Read the rest of the sentence. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work so what is God judging the believer their work and it's it's singular not plural not works but kind of the comprehensive effort of your life after being saved is what God is evaluating for the remainder of our lives and so the question here is what do you do with your life after salvation and this is not a you might lose your salvation talk not what I'm saying at all just to be very clear, this is a, what are you going to do with your life? You have been saved. You're going to be with God forever. Praise him for that. What a glorious day that will be. But a, a funny joke that our senior pastor says sometimes is say, hey, there's a reason that when we baptize you and you're saved, we don't just hold you underwater and send you to glory. 
it's a little morbid. I don't know how to say it out loud, but we're here. But there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason that we, we don't just kind of say, all right, you're, you're saved, so you're good. Go up. You might as well just go to heaven. No, no, God, God keeps us here. We have a stay on earth, as Peter says. We're elect exiles, so this isn't our final and, and full home. And yet we still have a purpose here on earth that we ought to live out. We have work to do. And God is going to be evaluating and judging that for the rest of our lives. And so here's some questions for you. Did you become, or are you becoming, all that God intended for you to be? Did you become, or are you becoming, all that God intended you to be? Are you being bold with your faith? Are you being a light in the darkness, which is what God calls us as believers? Are we honoring God in our speech and our conduct? Are we obedient when God calls us to do something, whether that's share the gospel or to, to cut something out of our life or to devote God something a part of our life? Maybe it's serving somewhere and, or sharing your faith with somebody. Were we faithful with our circumstances and resources in this life? All of us have different circumstances and resources, and so we can't, we can't necessarily get into the specifics, but we know in general that God has given us things. How do we manage those? Are we faithful to, to honor Him with those, or do we hoard them for ourselves and for our own pleasure? Are we storing up treasures on this earth where moth and rust will, will destroy, or are we living for eternity? Are you running hard after God to honor him or are you one foot in the world and one foot in the church? I think these are some of the things that God is evaluating, God is judging in our lives, which is exactly why Peter would say, conduct yourselves with, with fear, with your stay on earth, because God wants all of us he wants every aspect of our lives, as we saw last week in verse 14, sorry, verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. That there's not an aspect of your life that God does not wish to rule over, to have lordship of. And so when, his, when he invites us to follow him, he, he wants all of us, not just some of us. We want the blessing, but we also sometimes don't really want the commitment. But, but he wants all of us. He says, I want every aspect of your life so you can't just say now that i'm saved i'm just gonna coast i'm just gonna kind of throw it into neutral i checked that box and so i'm good now i'm gonna live for myself like yeah i'll go to church i'll do the bare minimum but not much more than that that's that's not the invitation that jesus has in mind if he's going to be your savior he's going to be your lord as well and i can tell you if this is your mentality just to kind of coast, you might prepare yourself for some, some discipline, some encouragement with a kick from the Lord to get you into gear that he might move you to a place where you're in the game because he loves you too much to just kind of keep you there in neutral and just living a life of stagnation. He loves you too much to do that. Here's what it's cool what Peter does. He says, if you address his father, meaning... You're in the family of God now. You're addressing him as father. You're a son and daughter of him. Well, guess what? He's the one who impartially judges. 
literally says he's not a respecter of faces. So it doesn't matter who you are. God's not, not, he's not intimidated by you. He's not impressed by you. He's not a respecter of faces. He's going to judge you impartially. Meaning just because you're a part of the family of God, you can't just be in neutral or living a life of disobedience and think God's gonna let it slide. So hey, I'm, I'm a child of God now. He's gonna let things slide. I can kind of do whatever he wants. No, 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 that's not how God works. He's an impartial judge and he's going to discipline us because we are his sons and daughters. I don't know if you remember when you used to play on youth sports teams. Um, I did growing up, didn't boys baseball incorporated or whatever it was called, DBBI. That was the place. And I played all these different kinds of sports. And all youth sports have one thing in common. One of the kids' son, or one of the kids' dads is the coach. You know, it's like there's always a dad that's a coach and then there's always a coach's son. And that can go one of two ways. On the, on the negative side, you get a, a coach's kid that is just a spoiled brat that gets away with everything, okay? They can do whatever they want, and their dad just doesn't really say anything, or mom, whatever, I'm just gonna say dad, because that was my experience. You just get the kid that could do whatever they want, and, and their parent, their, the coach, would just let them play all the best positions, they would never put them on the bench, they would let them play the whole time, they just kind of had the, the spoiled experience. I remember I had one, I think, I don't know if we were maybe elementary school, fourth or fifth grade, and there was this one coach's kid. He was the absolute worst. I don't remember his name, but I remember his face. And you're, it's, <laughs> he's not here tonight, but uh, I'm always waiting, maybe one day. But this kid, I mean, they had some money, and he would always play. He wasn't even, like, that good, but he just played. He pitched, and he batted first, and we're like, this guy's just letting us down. But uh, you couldn't do anything because he was the coach's kid. And he was so spoiled. I remember one time... Uh, he had this kid that was throwing him rocks and he was using his bat, a nice bat, and he was just hitting these rocks and getting all of these bad dents in there. And I remember one of the people were like, dude, don't use your bat. It was another, like, one of the coach's dads. He's like, don't use your bat. Like, that's, you're messing up your bat. You're gonna break it. And, the, and this kid literally goes, ah, it doesn't matter. My parents will just buy me another one. I kid you not, like the next week, this guy had a bat. And it wasn't just an any, it was like a DeMarini voodoo, something, which I know means nothing to 98% of this audience. But it was a really nice bat. Like it was a pretty, a pretty good one. And like you, just because he's your son, you're being a really bad coach. And that's what some people think in, in Christianity. It's like, well, now that, that God is my judge, surely he's just going to let things slide because I'm a part of the family. And that's a partial coach. That's a, <laughs> that's a bad coach. But on the other side of it, and, and maybe this is some of you, uh, you, have, uh, you have the coach's kid where, where their dad, their mom, was harder on them than everyone else combined. <laughs> I mean, they could do the smallest thing wrong, and their, their parent was just ripping into them. How could you do that? What are you doing? You're wasting it. Go give me more laps. And you're like, dude, chill out. We're like five. I mean, they're just so intense on their kid, and they are impartial to the maximum degree. And you're like, wow, what is the difference there? Well, there's a difference in partiality and impartiality. And I would also say there's a rooted thing here that, that the coach that is impartial is also a coach that really loves their kid because they're willing to discipline them to get the best out of them. 
And I think that's what you see here with God, that he's an impartial judge with us in this life, that he is going to discipline, as Hebrews 12 says, there's your homework for the week, as Hebrews 12, read it. God disciplines the one that he loves. That's what he does. See, if he loves you, he doesn't want to just leave you in neutral. He wants you to grow. He wants you to be better, to be more like Christ. And so he's not just going to leave you there in stagnation. He's going to, to discipline you. And is that a little bit of a scary thing? Yeah, absolutely. But, but to be clear, it's, it's not a slavish fear. When you read fear in the scriptures, there's often this feeling that we get of, of terror, as though God is angry and abusive and, and kind of a loose cannon and you never know what he's going to do and we, and we fear him in that way, but that's not the fear of the Lord that, that the scriptures talk about. So man, I know that the way of God is good, but to go against God is not going to go well for me. And so I fear that God is faithful to discipline me, to bring me back into right relationship with him. And sometimes that's not going to be the easiest thing in the world because he might let consequences play themselves out in my life I'm starting to realize that more and more Asher's a two year old he's about to be three in April and there are times when we tell him don't do that Asher if you do that you might get hurt don't do that and there's times I mean limiting factors right we don't want him to die but there are times where we will just let him experience the consequences of his ways so that he learns and that might be a, bit, a, a little bit of a terrifying thing or there might be times where we're saying, we, we say this 90 times a day. I kid you not. Asher, you either choose to come to us so we can change your diaper or you choose to get a spanking. Which one do you want? And it's over and over and over again. And then there's this moment where he pushes the line because don't we all? He pushes the line and you just kind of know it. And then one of us will say, Amy and I will say, all right, go to your room. You're getting a spanking. And then immediate fear is in his eyes. And all of a sudden, he's like, I will change nine diapers. Whatever, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it, right? Because he knows it's game over, and we're faithful to spank him and, and be people of our word. But there's a fear there, and, it, and it's not a fear of, of like, these people don't love me. He may not always understand at the moment because he's two, but from our perspective as, as father and, and mom, we're not spanking him out of anger. We're spanking out of love because we want him to learn how to function as a normal citizen of this world. And we want the best for him. And so when you see the fear of the Lord, don't think negative all the time. Understand the heart of God to discipline those that he loves. We, we ought to have a deep respect and reverence for the holiness and character of God. So, so I want to honor him and I don't want to disobey him because I know his character. I know what he has done for me. So this type of fear leads us to obey because he is our impartial judge. And then secondly, he is our redeemer. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed or ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. God has redeemed us, ransomed us at the cost of his own, own son's life. When you read that word to redeem or ransom, it, it literally means to purchase someone's freedom. To purchase someone's freedom. When the scriptures say we were redeemed, we first have to understand that we were previously in bondage. 
We were previously enslaved and in debt to sin. That was our nature before Christ. Paul says we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the course of this world. That was our nature. We were in bondage. Sin was our master. It was our nature. The Bible describes the fallen human nature as sinful, and so you need to understand when you read a chapter like Romans 6, sin is more than just an action that is disobedient to God. It's a master over us. Sin is a master over us, and this is what Christ redeemed us from. He liberated us from the bondage to sin. Say, well, how did he do that? It wasn't with gold or silver. It wasn't with some materials of this word that there is no way that you can buy salvation. There's no way that you can earn it or or pay for it. No, he purchased our freedom with his own blood. It says, as a lamb, as of a lamb, unblemished, and spotless. This language Peter uses is pulled right from the Old Testament. Israelites were required to offer up animal sacrifices in order to provide a temporary covering for their sin. See, this is why they were always making sacrifices. It's because they were always sinning and sinful and therefore fracturing their relationship with God. And the only way to have a temporary covering for that sin was to provide a sacrifice. In fact, if you remember, after the fall, Adam and Eve... They sinned, they realized they were naked, they started pointing fingers and blaming each other. There's, they're, they're, they have a fallen nature quite immediately. But then it says right after that that God clothed Adam and Eve. Where did they get those clothes? It's from an animal. See, we see right after sin, the relationship with God is fractured, but God is going to clothe them. How? Through the sacrifice of an animal. Something had to die in order to cover them. Hebrews 9, 22 says, There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Well, we say, who made that rule? Finish this sentence. For the wages of sin is death. If we're going to sin, then our wage, what we earn, our payment is death. That's the way it works. If we're going to sin and rebel against God, we deserve death. And so the Israelites would offer up animals, but it, didn't, it wasn't just any animal. It had to be spotless and unblemished. You couldn't just offer up some raggedy, sickly animal because that's isn't a real sacrifice. There's no real loss there. It's just like, yeah, hey, yeah, whatever, here's this thing. No, it had to be something that was, that was valuable. It was unblemished. It didn't have any problems with it. It was a true, righteous life that was used as a sacrifice, as a substitute, so the unrighteous life could go free. This is what was happening. God was teaching them all the way from the Old Testament that a righteous life would take the place as a, as a substitute for an unrighteous life. The righteous would die, so the unrighteous live so if you want to have a relationship with God then sin has to be dealt with that's the way it works sin has to be dealt with if you're going to have a relationship with God remember John 4 the woman at the well 
they're having this conversation back and forth, uh, Jesus and this woman, and, and they're talking about water, and she's thinking very physically, and he's talking very spiritually. She's like, what is this living water that you speak of? And, and he's just going back and forth, kind of playing into it. And then finally, there's this moment where she says, okay, give me this water, then fine, just give me this water. So what she kind of is unknowingly doing is asking Jesus to, to forgive her to satisfy the desires and the needs of her heart. Like she's, she's kind of asking for salvation in a sense. And, and right when she does that, what does Jesus bring up? Hey, go and get your husband. Ooh. What did he bring up? Let's talk about your sin because that's what needs to be dealt with in order for us to have a relationship with one another. How is our sin dealt with? Jesus took our sin upon himself and he died in our place. Jesus is the spotless, unblemished lamb of God. That when he comes onto the scene and begins his public ministry, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is who he is. And he's spotless, he's unblemished, that there was he lived the perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled the law and the prophets and all the things that God required. He met him. He didn't have any sin. He wasn't like anybody else. He wasn't like all the high priests of old that would have to offer a sin for themselves to be cleansed and then they could offer, sin, uh, offer sacrifices for other people to be covered. No, no, no. Once and for all, Jesus was the perfect, righteous sacrifice that God required. He is the ultimate substitute sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who knew no sin. Who knew no sin? Jesus. Yeah, you guys nailed it. Perfect tone and everything. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> God made him who knew no sin to be sin. God treated him as though he was the sinner so that we who were the real sinners might be made the righteousness of God. He's the perfect substitute. He took our place. He died on the cross so that we could have life once and for all. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The foreknowledge was, was really an act of God in eternity past whereby he determined that his son would come as the savior of mankind. This foreknowledge is not like, oh, God knew about Jesus. Like, yeah, I've heard of that guy. No, no, no. Jesus was preexistent with the Father from, from eternity past. Jesus is not a created being. He was always there. God had a plan to redeem and restore this fractured world through the sacrifice of his son. And so when Peter says that he appeared, he's not saying that Jesus' birthday was the beginning of his origin. So no, Jesus was already existing. He's always existed. But he's now appeared, he's incarnated, he has stepped into human flesh for a very specific purpose. And that is to save us. He did it for our sake, as verse 20 says. In these last times, for the sake of you. He did it for us. And so all of us who are believers in God are the recipients of an amazing gift. 
Jesus laid down his life. The Father raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, as verse 21 says, so that, there's the purpose statement in the end of 21. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? Why did God raise him from the dead? Why do we have a gospel? So that your faith and hope are in God. The work of Jesus secures our relationship with God. The work of Jesus is why we can have a hope because we have zero hope without God. The reason why Jesus came is so that we could have faith and hope in him. Jesus is the connecting link between us and the Father. That relationship was fractured and severed because of sin. Jesus restored the way. You remember the, um, the bridge illustration? That's not what we get the name of our thing, but right, you have, you have like the two cliffs and then this uh, very doom and gloom chasm in the middle. And some people, as they do it, they, they have all these man-made things like church attendance and works and alms and giving and whatever. And they're all just like broken bridges that just lead into the chasm because all of man's efforts are hopeless to get them into right relationship with God. And at the very end, you have that, that light bulb aha moment where you draw the, cro- the cross and the cross literally bridges the gap between God and man. That's what Jesus came to do to bridge the gap between us and God. Without the sacrifice of Jesus, we are still in our sin and therefore we are hopeless. But now we have hope and we have a person to place our trust in. What a gift. That's why when we talk about the gospel, it literally means good news. Because it's really good news. So now, How does this motivate us to live for the glory of God? How does God as our judge and God as our redeemer motivate us to glorify God, to live our lives rather than just stay in neutral? Well, when you are given a gift that you do not deserve, it should fill you with gratitude and motivate you to honor the giver of that gift. When you receive a gift, man, you should be honored by that. You, you should be filled with gratitude and you say, man, I, I want to make sure I, I make good on that. I don't want to waste this gift that you have given me. I want to make sure that I, that I honor you. If your parents ever bought you a car or leased you a car or whatever and said, you can drive this around and, and whatnot, you should be like, thank you. I'm going to take care of this car because you gifted it to me. And when people say, hey, nice car, you shouldn't be like, yeah. You said, no, yeah, my parents are awesome. Right, the honor should go to them that you should take care of it and do the best you can with it because it was a gift. It's not your own. And so this should motivate us in many ways, understanding that our life, our spiritual life is a gift, not something that we earned, and we should seek to honor him with it. And how much more should we be motivated to honor God when the gift of our salvation comes at the cost of Jesus' life? Like Jesus sacrificed everything so that we could have life. He laid his life down. The cost is great so that we could be gifted something. How much more should we seek to honor him with that gift? There's a story, I I forget what book it comes from. 
think it's real, but I think it's good, so I'm going to share it. Um, this is many, 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 many years ago where they kind of set this setting up where uh, there is a, a slave that is taken to an auction block, and all of these people are around to, to bid on this slave, and, you know, they're going through all the different things, and they're bidding on them, and they're taking them based on how strong they are or whatever. And this, this slave goes up there, they put him up on the block, and right before people start to bid on him, he shouts, I won't work. I won't work. Don't buy me. Don't spend any money on me because I will not work for you. And immediately no one, no one bids. Everybody's hands are down. They say, well, this guy's not going to work. Then I'm not going to buy him. And then all of a sudden, out of the back, someone raises their hand, says, I'll buy him. And then afterwards, after the moment, they exchange the money, give this guy the key, and he begins to walk up to this, uh, this his, his master now walks up to his slave, and the slave again says, I don't know why you wasted your money. I'm not working for you. And in this moment, as the, as the master approaches, the master took the key to his shackles, and he began to remove them. And he says, I did not buy you to become my slave. I bought you to set you free. You're free to go. And this newly freed man stood stunned. And then he dropped to his knees and he said, I'll serve you forever because I owe you my life. You have freed me. I owe you my life. You redeemed me. You ransomed me. I'll serve you forever. That is a gift. That is what it means to be redeemed and how it motivates to live for the glory of God forever. God has removed our shackles and chains. He has paid the price for our sins so that we can be free. Now we serve God, not out of a, a slavish fear of anger and abuse. No, we serve God out of a gratitude and a deeply rooted desire to honor him with the rest of our lives. And understanding that he loves us, he's not going to just let us slide into the mud, but he is going to continue to point us and discipline us out of love as he sees fit so that he can get the most out of us so that we do not waste our lives on this earth. He's worthy. He's worthy of our total lives. He's worthy of full devotion. He is worthy of one to be honored and praised and that we would live all of our lives and, and, and just as this man, we'd hit our knees and say, I owe you everything. I will serve you with all of my life because of who you are, because of the price you paid, for the death you died, so that I have now a life to live for your glory. Let me pray. Father, even as we just talk about your goodness and the gift that you have bestowed on us, I'm just reminded of your word. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. And so it's no longer I who lives, but it's, it's Christ who lives in me. And so the life that I live in the flesh, this remaining time that I have on this earth, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me that my life is not my own anymore. I live for you. I live for your glory. 
1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, I have been bought with a price, the price of your precious blood. Therefore, I will glorify God with my body. Romans 12, in view of the mercies of God, that when I look and see the mercy that you have bestowed on me, a sinner, I now offer up my life as a living sacrifice, that everything I am is yours. God, I want to live for your glory. I want to live for your praise. And I I just pray for my friends here as as we just begin to sing in this moment that that the praise of our lips would would result in, in the work of our hands, that we would want to live for you, not just sing and praise you and say thank you. It would start there, but it wouldn't end there, that, that tonight we would commit everything to you, that we would live for your glory, and this would motivate us and, and put the wind in our sails that whenever we feel stagnant, whenever we feel just going through the motions, we can look to the cross of Christ. We can look to the sacrifice you paid and obey and live out of a gratitude, not out of a guilt and out of a pity and out of a shame, but out of a gratitude. That for the joy set before you, you endured the cross so that we can rejoice with life in you forever and ever and ever. And that's good news. God, we sing to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have been our dwelling place away.